If you're not there already, you can find your way in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. It's the third book in, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, chapter 23. Pastor Dale already read it. I'll read it again. Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 34, page 171 in the church Bible. Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month is the Feast of Booths for seven days to Yahweh. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. For seven days you shall bring an offering by fire near to Yahweh. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and bring an offering by fire near to Yahweh. It is a solemn assembly. You shall do no laborious work. These are the appointed times of Yahweh which you shall proclaim as a holy convocation to bring offerings by fire near to Yahweh, burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each day's matter on its own day. Besides those of the Sabbaths of Yahweh and besides your gifts and besides all your votive and free will offerings which you give to Yahweh. On exactly the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of Yahweh for seven days with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. On the first day, you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall be glad before Yahweh your God for seven days." You shall thus celebrate it as a feast for Yahweh for seven days in the year, and it shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. So Moses spoke to the sons of Israel, the appointed times of Yahweh. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask him for help. Lord God Almighty, we ask that you would open our eyes to see the truth of your word. Lord, in the midst of a multitude of distractions all around us, in the midst of burdens, we carry with us from the stresses of life, I pray that you would help us by your grace, by the power of your spirit, to hear your word and to respond with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you like to go camping. And when I say camping, I mean real camping. You like to dwell in a tent for several days at a time without indoor plumbing. You know, cooking over the fire, that kind of camping. Someone has likened that to acting like you're homeless. As for me, I like the city boy kind of camping, you know, where there's cabins with real walls indoor plumbing, and you just tell everybody that you went camping. 
but you didn't really go camping. Well, for those of you who enjoy camping, I mean real camping, you're really going to like this feast this morning because it is the camping feast. It is the feast, the last feast on the calendar that God gives in Leviticus chapter 23 in which the Israelites were to dwell in tents, in booths as they're called. Some of your translations may say tabernacles, i.e. tents, for seven days. Well, to frame a little bit of the context of these feasts that we've been working our way through here in Leviticus chapter 23, the Jewish calendar had three pilgrimage feasts, and if you planned your vacations properly, you could hit all seven of the feasts by hitting the three pilgrimage feasts. The three pilgrimage feasts was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was early on the Jewish calendar, the first month, kind of our springtime, April, May, right around this time of year. And clustered with that first pilgrimage feast was first Passover, which would then follow the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. And then uh, shortly after Passover, within the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was the Feast of first fruits, And we, we saw how each of those feasts points to that first coming of Christ where the the, the Passover, Jesus is the Passover lamb. He lied in the grave literally on the the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The flat bread was a picture of Jesus' burial. And then the Feast of First Fruits is a picture of his resurrection as the Apostle Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then the the next pilgrimage feast was was, uh, Pentecost. Okay, some 50 days later, which again, we see fulfillment of this in Acts chapter 2 with the beginnings of this new people of God that we call the church. Jews and Gentiles brought together into one family, united under the banner of the new covenant. And then, some seven months, or actually be six months later, towards the end of the harvest on the Jewish calendar, was the Feast of Trumpets. And, and we, we, we talked several weeks ago with these, these last three feasts, which the, the feast that the Jewish people were supposed to attend was the Feast of Tabernacles that we're going to look at today, also called the Feast of Booths. You may hear me use those terms interchangeably. But again, if you planned your vacations properly, uh, you could, if you took off that, took off that whole month, you could come and hit these last three feasts, which began with the Feast of Trumpets, which that was a kind of Jewish New Year on a Jewish people today called that's Rosh Hashanah. And this is a picture we see in the New Testament that the trump resounds in who returns? Christ. So now we see that each of these feasts has a prophetic element to it. And then we saw last time the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur. This was on the 10th day of the seventh month, 10 days after the Feast of Trumpets. This was that one day of the year in which the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. And again, this is a picture of the cleansing of the land, the cleansing of God's people we see fulfilled in the first coming, but also in the future where God purges planet earth of rebellion and righteousness dwells and God is with his people. And so... You may be thinking, well, what 
what else could be left on the calendar? Well, it's this last feast on the Jewish calendar. Now, when I say the last feast, the last feasts that are prescribed in Torah, in the, in the law of Moses. Now, there are a handful of other feasts that are even practiced in Judaism. And we see, uh, well, one of them in the Old Testament, one in the intertestamental period crops up. But the Feast of Purim, Purim means lots. It's, it's the feast that arises during the book, time of the book of Esther. Okay, uh, but that's, that's many years later it arises, but there's reason to believe Jesus himself observed that feast. And the Feast of Dedication, or as we commonly call it, Hanukkah. That feast arose uh, during the intertestamental period, during the time of Maccabees with the rededication of the temple. And, and we see in, in John chapter 10, Jesus observes that feast. But these are the seven feasts that God gave Israel. The last of these, the Feast of Tabernacles. So let's, let's dive in. Verse 33 again, Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, verse 34, speak to the sons of Israel saying, on the 15th day of the seventh month is the Feast of Booths for seven days to Yahweh. Now, I mentioned in this series, I, I've labeled all these feasts, but this is a real feast, okay? I, I mentioned if I was to rename this series, you know, sometimes that, that's one of the humbling things, you know. Sometimes you preach through a book, an entire book of the Bible, and you come to the end of it, and you feel like, I finally understand what this book is about. Well, sometimes that happens as well with, with something like this, with the feasts. Uh, because, namely, these feasts weren't all feasts. We saw the Day of Atonement was actually probably a fast, not a feast. So I would probably relabel it the holidays, the holy days of Yahweh. But this, this last one was actually a feast. I mean, they were getting down with this feast. They were partying hearty with this feast. There was food and everything. Probably, this is going to be difficult for some of you in Grain Baptist, there was probably dancing as well. They were commanded in this feast, as we're going to say, to rejoice. Okay, but more on that later. Verse 35. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. We're going to see that this is a seven-day feast, and it's bookended by Sabbath, in which the Israelites were commanded to do no work. So the beginning of the feast... No work, no labor. The end of the feast, the tail end, the last day, no labor, no work. Verse 36. And, and by the way, who remembers what other feast was like this? It had bookends of Sabbaths, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was also a seven-day feast, and that was the, the first pilgrimage feast on the Jewish calendar. Verse 36. For seven days... You shall bring an offering by fire near to Yahweh. And on the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and bring an offering by fire near to Yahweh. It is a solemn assembly. You shall do no laborious work. Verse 37. These are the appointed times of Yahweh. You shall proclaim as a holy convocation to bring your offerings by fire near to Yahweh. Burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings. Each day's matter on its own day besides those of the Sabbaths of Yahweh, and besides your gifts and besides all your votive and free will offerings which you give to Yahweh. 
So there was prescriptions. We'll, we'll, we'll look at this a little bit later, just briefly. But there were certain sacrifices to be offered by the priest on each of the seven days of this feast. And also, I want to draw your attention to the end of verse 37. There was a kind of unique offering here that are not covered in all the offerings in those first seven chapters of Leviticus that we studied, I think a year and two years ago, however long. Drink offering, or sometimes called libation offerings. More on that later. Verse 39. On exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, So, just to kind of remind you, the seventh month had three holidays. The first, the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, the first day of the seventh month. The tenth day of the seventh month was a kind of fast day, the Day of Atonement. And now on the fifteenth day, and these are all harvest feasts, they're all at the end of the harvest. On the fifteenth day of the month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land... You shall celebrate the feast of Yahweh for seven days with a rest on the first day, a rest on the eighth day. In the first day you shall take for yourselves foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall be glad before Yahweh your God seven days. So here is instruction given. On the first day of the week you are to build a hut. This is your tent. It's not made of, I don't know, whatever materials you would go to, I don't know, what's a hunting store? You get it. Uh, I don't know, fin, feather, fur, whatever. Uh, you go there and, and you, you, you buy a tent. It's not made of that material. It's made of branches, leaves, and this is what you're going to live in. For seven days. And also notice, you are commanded to be a happy camper. In verse 40, you shall be glad before Yahweh. You need to put a smile on your face. This is a feast of rejoicing. All the harvest is in. Verse 42, you shall live in these booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths so that your generations may may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, which I, uh, I am Yahweh, your God. To be glad. To be glad. And by the way, if you were to look at the parallel in Deuteronomy chapter 16, I think it's three times is this command to be glad. During this feast. This was supposed to be a happy camper feast. Which, again, this is, this is important for us. The place of joy and happiness in the Christian life. I think in some reformed circles the motto might be crankiness is next to godliness. <laughs> but not according to the scripture. 
Now, there is a place for us to fear the Lord and to revere the Lord. And, and by the way, I don't believe these are mutually exclusive responses to the Lord. I mean, after all, we looked at Psalm 2 several uh, weeks ago, and it says, Rejoice with trembling. That there can be an intermingling with joy and delight as well as fear and reverence. And so we're going to see with this feast, it gives us three compelling reasons to rejoice. To rejoice, first of all, because of grace in the past. God's grace in the past. To rejoice in God's grace in the past. Now, this is again. So imagine you are an ancient Israelite. You're commanded to observe this feast. It's at the end of the harvest. You're to dwell in a leafy tent for seven days. And God tells you (coughs) explicitly in verse 42 and 43 why you're to do this. It seems like a strange observance, right? You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths so that your generations, this is a teaching tool, your generations, your children, your grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren, your great-great-great-great-grandchildren, that they may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I, when I <coughs> brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. Living in these huts for seven days was a teaching tool to remind the Israelites. So, you know, when, when, the, when this comes around, Daddy, are we going to Jerusalem? Yes, son, we're going to Jerusalem. Do we get to... Do we get to go camping? Yes, we get to go camping. And tell me again, why are we camping? Son, because our people lived in the desert for 40 years when God hand-plucked them out of Egypt. And he provided for their every need for those 40 years. They didn't have any food. They couldn't plant gardens in the desert. So you know what God did? He brought bread down from heaven. And he he fed them manna from heaven. There was hardly any animals. So he made birds fly their way. Quail so that they could eat. He brought forth water out of rocks. And he did this. And ultimately, he would bring them into the promised land. He would give them a land of their very own. Not a land that they had cultivated. Not a land that they had earned. But all of this was God's kindness and grace that he did for them. By the way, this phrase at the end of verse 43, I am Yahweh your God. We saw that phrase over and over in chapters 18, chapters 19. It's a shorthand. It's a shorthand for Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spake all these things, saying, I am the Lord your God, same phrase, which hath brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. It's a reminder of God's grace. God's past grace. What God had done. And not only that, not only the exodus... Not only the way in which God had wonderfully provided, but remember, what 
holy day happened just five days prior. The day, as it's often called. The day of atonement. Yom Kippur was just five days prior, which Yom Kippur we saw over and over. What was the command related to that? Humble yourselves, abase yourselves, afflict yourselves. It was a very sad and somber holy day. But five days later comes rejoicing. The high priest has made the offering. The high priest has confessed the sins of God's people and sent the scapegoat away. God has granted forgiveness for his people. You are forgiven. God has taken the cursor and dragged it across all your sins and hit the delete button. You're forgiven. And so we can see that here's this abasing of self, a somber holy day with the day of atonement that quickly leads to rejoicing. And so this holy day was a reminder of God's grace. Henry Law, he says, when is the Lord most precious to the soul? When our heart rapture, when When do our hearts rapture at their fullest tide? It is when sins have been most keenly felt and meek confession has most humbly wailed. Extraordinary beauty then shines from the cross. Then faith, faith embraces it with stronger grasp and fervent praises raise triumphant notes. Morn is most welcome after stormy night. The rays most cheer which gleam from a dark cloud. Peace is most peaceful after tossing doubts. The hope which once was lowest rears strongest head. He most loves Christ who most discerns his need. The expiation day which ushers in the happy tabernacle feast confirms these lessons. Or as in the words of Jesus, she loves much. Why? Because she's been forgiven much. You rejoice much because of past grace. So God had a way of reminding his people of his past grace through ritual. Whether it was in the tents for seven days or whether it was the previous holy day of the day of atonement, all of this was ritual. The sacrifice was reminders. God has been kind to you. But he also had another way of reminding his people not only through ritual, but through reading. The reading of the law. You see, God had prescribed in Deuteronomy chapter 31 that every seven years on this day, on on this feast of tabernacle, feast of booths, there was to be a kind of Bible conference. 
There was to be public reading of the Scripture. Listen to Deuteronomy 31.10. It says, Then Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, we'll, we'll look at that in chapter 25, the, the, the year of the remission of debts, <coughs> you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men and the women and the little ones and the sojourner who is within your gates so that they may hear and so that they may learn and fear Yahweh your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. And their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear Yahweh your God all the days that you live in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. So there were specific instructions. Every seven years, there was to be a public reading of the law. Now that means, now some of you young people, you get a little bored after Pastor Matt's long sermons. Or maybe you tend to get bored during family Bible time. Dad, do we have to read the Bible again? But they read through all first five books of the Bible. Okay, and it's very clear, it wasn't just for the adults, right? All the little ones had to be there to hear. Why? They were hearing of God's wondrous grace. And yes, there are obligations to this God, but they were reminded, wow, God did that. He brought these ten plagues. He brought our ancestors out of Egypt. He put them in the land. Wow, what an amazing God. And this was put into practice, by the way, uh, a passage you may not have thought in relationship to the Feast of Tabernacles, a passage that's sometimes used by preachers like me to defend expository preaching, the reading, the teaching, and the exhortation of Scripture from Nehemiah chapter 8. After they had come back into the land, they had been vomited out of land because their rebellion, God brings them back into the land during the days of Nehemiah and Ezra. And you remember in Nehemiah chapter 8, it says, Ezra opened the book. Ezra, Ezra 8, or I'm sorry, Nehemiah 8, 5. Ezra's reading. That's how it gets confusing. Because Ezra, find, Ezra finds himself in the book of Nehemiah. The man Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people. And he opened it up and he stood, and the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed Yahweh the great God and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. See, you're allowed to say Amen. While lifting up his hands, or lifting up their hands, they bowed low and worshipped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. Verse 8, they, that is Ezra and these, these other priests, they read from the book of the law of God, explaining and giving insight, and they provided understanding of the reading. And then verse 10, then he said to them, go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. I told you it was to be a happy feast. 
So there's this public reading of the scripture. So, so the point, what I want us to draw from this, there's the ritual and there's the reminder through the reading of God's word of the abundance of God's past grace to give you great joy. And so you can see there's, there's much application for us as New Testament saints here. Now, we're not planning a camping trip, but we have our own ritual, do we not? Not as much ritual as the Old Testament saints do, but Jesus said something like this, do this in remembrance of me. Drink of this cup, eat of this bread, do this in remembrance of me as a reminder of the new exodus, the way in which Jesus died on that bloody Roman cross and bore my sin, my hell that I deserved so that I can stand before God pardoned, acquitted of all my sin. So we have the ritual and we have the reading. No doubt this is one of the reasons why I actually quote it to you without you knowing my quote. In First Timothy chapter 3, or chapter 4, I think in verse 13, Paul tells Timothy in the public gathering to give your attention to the reading of Scripture, to the teaching, and to the exhortation. That as new covenant believers, the ritual and the reminder are to remind us of God's past grace for your joy. So friend, if you were to measure your joy this morning on a scale of 1 to 10, where would your joy be? Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher of last century, in his book called Spiritual Depression, he argues that miserable Christians are bad as advertisements for the Christian faith. It's hard to argue with that. It's hard to argue that grumpy Christians are bad advertisements for the Christian faith. We of all people on planet earth. Have much reason to be happy. Now I'm not dismissing the reality of. This fallen world. And even the laments of scripture. As we observe. The awful tragedies that we encounter. In this fallen world. The evil. The rebellion against our creator. The suffering that exists. I'm not saying just paste a smile on your face. But I'm saying in the midst of the sorrows, in the midst of the heartache, we can have joy. Why? God's past grace. As New Testament Christians, does not the Apostle Paul teach that you have been adopted into the family? You cry, your heart cry is Abba, Father, Daddy. 
these New Testament terms like justification. You've been declared righteous, pardon of your sin before this holy God. Reconciliation. You who are at one point at war with this God have been reconciled to him. That you can bask in God's kindness that he has shown you in Christ Jesus. Friend, you can have joy in the midst of tears. This is God's past grace. This God who reached down to you when you were in the cesspool of your sin. When you were wallowing in your own self-righteousness and the shackles of sin clanged loud in your life and God the Almighty broke the chains of that sin. He pardoned you and forgave you of all of it. He took the blinders off of your eyes. He brought you into his family. Don't forget, my Christian friend. Rejoice over it. Secondly, rejoice not only because of grace in the past, but secondly, rejoice because of grace in the person. Now, as with all these feasts, you know where I'm heading with this. Because the scripture, the New Testament writers force me to head there. That all of these feasts, all of these holy days are pictures, shadows, types, as some theologians call them. Patterns whereby we find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 2 Verse 16 and 17 says, Therefore, let no one judge you in regard to food and drink or in respect to a festival, a new moon, (coughs) or a Sabbath. In other words, he's referring to all these feast days and Sabbath days. Things which are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. A shadow is not the thing. If you see the shadow of a tree... You don't chop down that shadow. It's not the tree. But it points to the tree. If I'm going with my family on a trip to North Carolina, and we're driving along, and we're about 500 miles away, and there's a sign that says, you know, Interstate so-and-so, North Carolina. I don't pull the car over. Get out, looking at the sign saying, kids, we made it to North Carolina. Why? It ain't North Carolina. It's a sign that points North Carolina this direction. In the same way, these feasts are not the substance. They're not the reality. But the reality is found in the person, in the Lord Jesus Christ. We say, okay, how does this happy camper feast point to Jesus? I'm glad you asked. Well, one of the ways, in Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 37, I, I, I hinted at it already. One of the ceremonies or rituals related to this feast was the drink offerings. 
the drink offerings. In, a, in this drink offering ceremony, which took place every day, and according to Jewish tradition, there would be water that was drawn from the pool of Siloam, and there was this great accompaniment of dancing as this water, I told you there was dancing, brought to the temple, and then, and this evidently happened for seven days, but it's on the seventh day that the libation ceremony took place, where the water was poured out. And, and part of this was a, a kind of tangible, visible prayer for future rain during the off-harvest season. But it's no accident that part of the tradition when they did this, according to Herman Ritterboss, he says, there was a daily procession to Siloam where water was dipped and to be brought to the temple to the accompaniment of music and recitation of texts like Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. We say, what does that say? Therefore you will draw water from the springs of salvation. And then Ritterboss continues, after the procession around the altar, repeats six times, and then on the seventh day of the feast, the water was poured out on the altar on top of the burnt offering in the temple. The libation water played a particularly great role in people's imagination. It symbolized a harvest as a ritual and a hope of prayer for rain and fruitfulness, but also eschatological hope of the wells of salvation overflowing with abundance. So this ritual had a water-pouring ceremony, and it was on the last day of the feast. And wouldn't you know, in the Gospel of John, Jesus, at the beginning of John chapter 7, his brothers are mocking him, making fun of him, you want to do some tricks? Why don't you go up to the feast and do some tricks? And initially he doesn't. But eventually, again, remember it's a seven-day feast. He does go. And in John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39, it says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And then, and then he says, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John explains in verse 39, But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were going to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. In other words, part of this camping feast included a water-pouring-out ceremony in which they chanted and danced all the way to the temple. And then finally on the seventh day, there was this pouring out, and this pouring out was a, a kind of prayer for for salvation for God to pour out the waters of salvation on his people and the Jewish people observed this with great confidence no doubt this feast as their hope 
But Jesus stands in the middle of that feast and declares, I'm what that feast pointed to. I have the waters of salvation. So that anyone who sees his thirstiness, anyone who perceives their need of salvation, who sees the weight of their guilt before me, can come to me, and I invite them to me, and they can come and drink. But also, there's still more. Another one of the ceremonies in Jewish tradition related to this was the lighting of giant candles, giant menorahs. Alan Ross in his commentary on Leviticus says, the second ceremony was placing four large lighted candlesticks to recall the pillar of fire that led the Israelites by night. And so it's in this same context, and not in John chapter 7, but John chapter 8, and there's kind of a distracting interlude that we don't have to, we, we can't get into all the textual difficulties of the, the woman committed in adultery, but, but almost certainly that's not supposed to be in that place in the gospel of John. And in John chapter 8 and verse 12, still on the heels of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so all, everything in this feast is pointing to, it's a sign that's pointing to Jesus as the fountain of grace. As the source of grace. So that the, the grace is not found in the ritual but in that which the ritual pointed to. And so, this is cause for rejoicing. Because the reality has come. The shadow has faded into the background. And the substance is here. The Lord Jesus died upon that Roman cross to ensure salvation, to ensure the guarantee of this free offer, that it's a legitimate offer. That if anyone is thirsty, they can come to Jesus and drink. And so, friend, if you've not yet drunk of Jesus, if you've not yet come to Jesus thirsty, realizing your own guilt before this holy God, weighed down by the burden of your sin, acknowledging your inability to obey God as you ought to, your utter failure in making a wreck out of your own life. You need to see that. You need to see your own sin and filth before God before you realize you need a bath. You need a washing thirsty sinner this morning I invite you to Christ why would you not why would you not go to this Christ who offers full forgiveness and newness of life why would you refuse his offer of grace 
Oh, my friend, don't refuse. Don't think that you're too dirty for his cleansing. If you're thirsty, come. Come to Jesus. I exhort you in the name of Christ, turn to him. Don't delay. Tomorrow is not promised. And hell is forever. And for those who do not turn to Christ, he is the only one who can quench your thirst. He is the only one who can satisfy your greatest spiritual need. He himself declares in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me, he says. You go to God through Jesus, no other way. He is the only fount. He is the only light. You find yourself in darkness this morning and the confusion of the lies of this world. Come into the light. Go to Jesus who declares himself the light of the world. If you follow him, you will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. Young people, don't delay. Don't think that this is just for adults. It's for every boy, every girl, every man, every woman. Don't refuse these offers of grace because you can harden your heart beyond the point of no return. Don't harden your heart. Go to Christ. He is the person where we find this grace. And also, Christian, he is where we find joy. And this is why the Apostle Paul, with no doubt some kind of instrument of incarceration around his, around his wrist and probably around his ankle, shackled in the book of Philippians, in chapter 4, in verse 4, he tells the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And in case they didn't get it, and again, I say, rejoice. Slap that scowl off your face. Slap that frown. Turn it upside down. You have much to rejoice over in the Lord. Because of his grace. I mean, if you receive a gift, a gift that meets your greatest need, a gift that has come at tremendous cost, Don't you rejoice over that? Somebody's kindness, somebody's sacrifice. Rejoice. But lastly, not only rejoice in the past grace, rejoice in the person of grace, but now thirdly rejoice in the grace that is promised in the future. <coughs> We say, how does the 
Feast of Tabernacles point to grace in the future. Well, I mentioned Feast of Tabernacles pops up in that post-exile period in the book of Nehemiah, where they're literally observing this. Well, there was a prophet during that time period, one of the post-exile prophets by the name of Zechariah. And Zechariah has a handful of visions in his 14 chapters that he gives us. And these visions are not always very easy to understand. But in one of these visions off into the future, in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 7, he says, and it will be a unique day which is known to Yahweh, neither day nor night. But it will be that at evening there will be light. It's going to be light time during the night time. Verse 8. And it will be in that day that the living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Now that's significant. Waters flowing out of Jerusalem. Much like the waters flowing out of Eden. Half of them shall be towards the east, the other half towards the western sea, and it will be in the summer as well as in the winter. No wadis, no riverbeds that are empty, flowing with water. Verse 9, and Yahweh will be king over all the earth. In that day, Yahweh will be the only one, his name One. Now, I don't have all my eschatological T's crossed, nor my I's dotted. But whatever that is, that sounds pretty good. Verse 16. Then it will be any of those who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up year to year to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, at the happy camper feast the feast of booths what a beautiful thing that in the feast of booths there is a and it makes sense remember it is a harvest feast it's at the end of the uh, of the agricultural calendar it's after all the harvest has been brought in It's a time of rejoicing. So it is on the eschatological calendar when all of God's elect are brought in. It's a time of rejoicing. It's no wonder, by the way, it's no wonder that the Apostle Peter, who we often throw under the bus, but I think he was on to something here, even though he he had an over-realized eschatology, on this occasion. Remember it's the day of transfi- it's it's the, the time of transfiguration. And Luke records after eight days, by the way. All of a sudden Jesus is glowing. He's glowing. It, you know, Mark records you know, I mean this is as white as any launderer could make white. I mean, just glowing. And, not only that, Elijah and Moses are there. Just in case it wasn't odd enough. Right? Now, how 
Peter knew it was Elijah and Moses. I don't know. Maybe they had team jerseys. Moses, Elijah, you know. I don't know. But he knew it was Moses and Elijah. And Luke records, they're talking about Jesus' upcoming exodus, his departure, as it comes across in our English translations. And do you remember what Peter's response was? Tents. Tabernacles. One for me, one for you, Elijah, and one for Moses and Jesus, maybe. Now, Peter does get rebuked by Jesus. I think because it wasn't the time for that. But I don't think he was totally off base when he seen Jesus and the effulgence of his glory, which is his coming glory, as Second Peter describes and the other gospel writers that he's thinking feast of tabernacles this is the time to celebrate we've arrived and Jesus has to say no go down off the hill not yet but he was on to something he was on to the reality that the feast of tabernacles pointed to a future grace a future reality after the ingathering has all been brought in and God's people celebrate. And as the Apostle John records, there's a marriage supper of the Lamb. There is feasting, there is rejoicing. There is an arrival at last. Several times in my life, a handful of times, I've had the privilege to go outside of this country. And every time I've gone outside of this country, I've come back metaphorically kissing the ground. I, I do, as an aside, I think everybody who grumbles and complains about this country, they just need to be exiled for several months. Because they've come home, right? Maybe there's been times where we've been on a lengthy trip away from family. There's quite nothing like sleeping in your own bed. Being with the people you love. This is in a, in a very real sense is a homegoing feast. It's a, it's a realization that we're living in tents. This is not our temporary dwelling. Remember the Israelites, this was on their way to the promised land. They were living in tents, living in huts. This is a reminder. This was a temporary dwelling. Was well, New Covenant believers, the Apostle Peter says, we have an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and never fades away, reserved in heaven for you by faith. We have the promise of future grace. And this, again, should cause you to rejoice. Because as hard and as difficult as this world is, filled with its trials and tribulations, it's not 
the final end of the story. The story ends with all of God's people in Revelation 21, verse 3 and 4, when God tabernacles amongst his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he, as it were, with his very own napkin shall wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed Friend, this is the hope of every Christian. The hope of future kindness. When God brings us to the eternal promised land of a new heavens and new earth. So again, Christian, imagine with me for a moment You've invited me to go camping, real camping. And we're going to carpool to the campsite. And you pull up to my house. And you see in the driveway a U-Haul. And I've got a refrigerator on the dolly pulling it up into the back of that U-Haul. And you're thinking, what in heaven's name's going on here? What's the problem? Matt, we're just camping. This isn't our eternal home. This isn't a permanent dwelling. So it is in the Christian life. This is not your permanent dwelling. We're just living in tents, according to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. We're just tabernacling. But we can live with the joy of anticipation of an eternal home. Samuel Rutherford, the English Puritan, says, The seasick passenger shall come to land, and Christ will be the first that will meet you on the shore. If you knew the welcome that waits for you when you come home, you would hasten your pace. Christ will meet you on the shore. It's some in that beautiful contemporary song. Though with every toil and danger, we are almost home. How many pilgrim saints have before us gone? No stopping now. We're almost home. How many pilgrim saints, I'm sorry, the promised land is calling? Can you hear it? We're almost home. And not a tear shall fall then. We're almost home. Make ready now your souls for that kingdom come. No turning back. We're almost home. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your abundant grace. Indeed, this 
summons us to rejoice. Help us by your grace to rejoice as we marinate our minds upon your grace. Amen.